Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. There are just some people who know how to make an entrance, don't they? Whether it is someone walking into a room or an entertainer stepping on the stage in a full arena, some people can just make their presence known. And you can likely think of some elaborate entrance or presentation that you've been present for, and when it happens, an already excited crowd just pops. And you know the person that we've all been waiting for has arrived. Now the perfect example that I can think of is a sporting event when they announce the starting lineups. The crowd has been anticipating the game for hours. Between travel to the game, tailgating, and then getting through the gate to find their seats, the suspense of the game beginning has been building up for hours. There is excitement in the air. And then the majority of the starting lineup is introduced and announced. And then, as usual, they leave the superstar for last. He is the last one to be announced. And an arena that you think, that you didn't think could get any louder, takes the decibel level to a completely another level. Now, the higher the stakes of the game, we know the louder the crowd will be. I have a perfect example of this, and you'll know what I'm talking about. I had never even heard the word decibel once in my life. Now, mind you, I was only 12, but I had never heard the word decibel in my life until the 1987 World Series with the Twins. Does anybody else remember? They would show how loud the crowd was by putting a decibel meter on the lower uh, right-hand side of the TV screen. And it was just, that meter was shaking. The higher the stakes, the louder it was. Even sitting at home without the decibel meter, you could tell just how loud it was. The anticipation of this important game, this important event, was building up to this massive crescendo. And as we approach Easter, we find ourselves coming to a crescendo in the life of Jesus. And here we are considering the triumphal entry of Jesus this morning. Now while we don't know how high the crowd that day would have gotten on a decibel meter, there is no denying that Jesus makes quite an entrance into the holy city for Passover here. And we find a crowd that believes that the stakes are high and that Jesus is the one that they have been waiting to arrive. Their words that day express that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah that has been promised. And so we come to this very familiar story today. And I'm going to break it down once again into the three points. And we will dig into it and see how this story once again plays out. So the first thing that we're going to be looking at this morning is the truth that Jesus fulfills prophecy. All throughout the Gospels, we see this important theme over and over. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, 
we see this idea being expressed to us once again. And this theme of fulfilled prophecy, it carries a lot of weight because it implies something important for us that we need to understand as we read the text. It implies that Jesus is the Messiah. Because the Old Testament doesn't have prophecies about just anyone and anything. There isn't a prophecy in the Old Testament that Zechariah is going to be eating hummus on a Tuesday. The prophecies of the Old Testament are pointing to the Messiah. And so here we have this reminder of the prophetic proclamation that there was of Jesus. And this was not only in these prophetic words, but in the types and shadows of the Old Testament too. The Messiah is what the Old Testament is driving at And the prophetic fulfillment that we see Jesus doing lets us know that he's the guy. He's the anointed one that the people have been waiting for. Secondly, we see Jesus enter Jerusalem with an astounding welcome. The way Jesus is received doesn't mean much to you and I, but the Gospels are showing us how much it meant to the people. And see, it wasn't just Jesus making an entrance. It was also the people affirming what they believed to be true about Jesus. That he is the one that they have been waiting for. The reception he gets is historically significant. And it shows that these people who are greeting him have a very high expectation for this Jesus who is riding into town on this beast of burden. And finally, we see that Jesus cleanses the temple. As he arrives in Jerusalem, he heads to the temple, and he kicks out those who are taking advantage of people in the temple courts. As Jesus does this, he does more than just overturn tables. He upsets the chief priests. He upsets the scribes. And in doing this, he puts a target on himself, setting up the rest of the story what you and I know is coming for Good Friday. So with those points before us, let's dig into this first point where we see Jesus fulfilling these these prophetic words. Now, as we start out here in the passage in Matthew, I want us to call back to what we've observed in the book of Luke over the last couple of months about what the teaching ministry of Jesus actually looks like. You've heard me say before, that that our perception of the life and teaching ministry of Jesus is often that he was kind of hanging out in Jerusalem all the time, and that he was teaching people there. But remember back to what we saw throughout the early chapters of Luke. Jesus is out and about teaching, but it's in the synagogues in the region of Galilee. And we really only see Jesus making his way to Jerusalem for the feast, like a good faithful Hebrew person would do. He goes for Passover. He goes for the Feast of Booze, right? He goes for these type of things. And here we find out that we're going to have the most detail about Jesus going into Jerusalem that we're going to get because this is his final observance of Passover. This is why he is headed to Jerusalem. And so we come to this first verse here, and we know that he is obviously headed to the city with the purpose of observing the Passover. And as they get close, Jesus sends two of his disciples out 
on a little side quest. And it's vital to the story that is unfolding in front of us because it helps to confirm who Jesus is for us. We see his identity as the Messiah. Now we see in the way that the story of Jesus is told in the Gospels that Jesus is clearly the Messiah. The Gospel writers make this clear. He is the one who was, the, who was promised all the way back in the garden, the one who was pointed to throughout the Old Testament. But don't the Gospels also leave us and give us a sense of tension, a sense of mystery? You see, we're brought along with the people who are observing these things happen, where we see this anticipation, is Jesus the Messiah or not? And the authors use these prophetic fulfillments, this messianic language, to confirm to us and to remind us about this question. Is Jesus the Messiah? Well, he is. Look how he fulfills this prophecy. And this part of the story does just that as Jesus gives these two disciples an interesting task. Now, it is an interesting task because traveling on his feet seems to have previously been just fine for Jesus. In fact, this seems like a bit of a chore. Did the disciples think to themselves, you've walked this far, Jesus, from Galilee to Bethpage, why do you need a ride now? You're right outside the city. Well, we see the reason that, that Jesus is doing this because he's in the business of confirming his identity to us. This is all about fulfilling a prophetic word. Before we, but before we get to that prophecy, we see how Jesus told them to acquire this mode of transportation. This, this part of the story is interesting to me because I know how awkward I would feel if it was me that he tasked this assignment to. Jesus, we're just supposed to walk up and take a donkey? And if someone objects, we tell them, the Lord needs it? The Bible doesn't tell us about the walk that the disciples took to get this donkey and the foal. But I would bet the two disciples likely had this type of a conversation. You walk up and take them. No, I ain't doing it. You do it. I know that's what it would have been like for me. That's what the conversation would have been. How awkward is this? And Matthew doesn't give us much detail on how the acquiring of the beasts of burden go down. Instead, he wants us to know that this fulfills a prophecy about the Messiah. And what is interesting about the Gospel of Matthew is that here in chapter 21, he is ramping up Old Testament references. Matthew starts with a whole bunch of Old Testament references about the birth of the Messiah, but then the quotations become few and far between from the Old Testament, and now they are starting. Just in the passages we read today, we get multiple quotations from the Old Testament. Here we have the idea that Jesus is the Messiah and business is picking up. We get the idea that this is the purpose of the Messiah, to come to Jerusalem and eventually to see that he is going to the cross. And so we see our king coming to fulfill this prophecy. And he's coming humbly on a donkey 
So Jesus ordains all of this to come to pass, and we need to remember how important it is that this, that this happens. And we need to think about what this means. Notice the use of two words here. King and humble. Jesus is king. But he's not coming with armies or with loud fanfare from his entourage. Instead, he comes in a humble manner. Not on a white steed, but on a foal. On a beast of burden. And all of this comes to pass And it's a confirmation for us that Jesus is the one who has been waited for throughout the ages. Not only the one prophesied of, but also the one that the types and the shadows and the rituals of the Old Testament have been pointing to for us. And before we come to our second point, I need to remind you about the expectation that the people here are having about the Messiah They're not expecting a humble king on a donkey. That's not what they're expecting. And you know know how you feel when you think that something that you've been hoping for is about to happen. You're excited. You're on the edge of, of your seat waiting for this to take place. Well, the people of Israel have been looking for the promises of God in the Old Testament for a very long time. They are a crowd that is anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They have been waiting. They are to a fever pitch. And now their hope is increased by the fact that here comes this Jesus. They've been hearing the stories of of how he is doing miracles and how he teaches with authority. And we also have to remember that their hope is increased by the fact that they're homeland has been occupied by the Romans. They don't want them there. They want them out. And not only that, do they believe, they believe that the Messiah will kick the Romans out, but they believe, they know their Bibles, they know their Old Testament. They understand the prophecies of Daniel. They understand that the 70 weeks leads up to this time in which they're living. They don't have an exact date when they've been promised the Messiah will come, but they know that they are living in that time. This is the powder keg that is, that is in Jerusalem at the time. They've calculated it. They've been waiting, and now Jesus is here. You look at history, and there were other people who came during this time claiming to be the Messiah, and people followed them. Why? Because they had messianic expectation that you and I can't even imagine. They were waiting for the Messiah. It was that time in history. They wanted the Romans gone, and so they were, they were ready for this Messiah to come. And as we move on to our second point, it's with this impending possibility of the arrival of Messiah that Jesus gets on the back of the donkey and the crowd is ready for him. Now you and I are used to the story. And so we kind of blow past the details here maybe. Uh, Maybe you remember what I've told you on past Palm Sundays on, on why this reaction of the crowd is significant. But to be honest, I had to double-check the details, so I'm guessing maybe you don't know them all either, so I am going to refresh your memory. This throwing of cloaks on the road and cutting the tree branches 
calls back to other events in the history of Israel. Now, it's reminiscent of a coronation of a king. And they aren't just throwing their cloaks on the ground because Jesus is a healer or Jesus is a good teacher. They're not saying, hey, here comes a healer. Let's put our cloaks on the ground. Jesus is going to teach us about the Old Testament better than anybody ever, ever has, so let's put cloaks on the ground. That's not what they're doing. Their actions here show their expectations of Jesus being a king. This is baked deep down into them. This is who they expect the Messiah to be. And then the waving of the branches calls back to a celebration when some conquering heroes returned from a military victory. And with that victory, the heroes returned, they cut the branches down, they waved them, and this became a huge part of the life of the people of Israel. This is actually the event that they celebrate when they celebrate Hanukkah. It still is a thing now, not with the palm branches, but this, this victory, this mil- military victory, goes back that far, and it was that big a deal. It was that baked into him. And so, this palm branch is significant to their history, so much so that when there was a revolution around the year 70, I believe, when they they made some coins for Israel as part of the revolution, as part of their thinking that they were getting away from Rome, and one of the symbols on the coin was a palm branch. So the palm branch and the cloaks are their expectations of a king and their expectations of a revolution. These historic details are important. They let us know what the people are expecting from this man on the donkey. Again, they're not expecting him to come and teach well. They're not expecting him to come and heal a few people. They are expecting an overthrow of the government. You see, they're aware of the power that Jesus has. They have heard what he has done. And so they are identifying him as the Messiah. And so they believe that he is going to end the Roman occupation and that he is going to sit on the throne as king. And so it doesn't take much to imagine what the people are thinking if you know what they are chanting. Hosanna sounds like a praise word to you and I, but it's actually a cry of desperation. It means save us now. It's a cry for salvation, and they aren't calling out in hopes that their sins will be forgiven. That's not the salvation they're looking for. They're calling out in hope that they will be saved from Roman occupation. And there is more to this than just the word Hosanna. Notice that they're calling out here to be saved by a specific person, the son of David. Now that's not only a messianic term. But remember who David is. He is the king in the history of Israel. He was the one on the throne when the kingdom of Israel was united. And he was really the only king who ever had any type of national unity that they desire. And so their chants are coming for David. It's messianic. It's kingly. But their chants also include a messianic psalm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is from Psalm 118. And this is a psalm of ascents. These were the psalms that they sang on their way to Passover. 
This would have been on their lips on the road. And now, while they've been singing this in hopes of a Messiah coming, now they believe they have one in front of him. Imagine the fervor of the crowd. They have this baked into them. They didn't have to look up Psalm 118 to sing it. They knew it. They had been singing it their whole lives, hoping for the Messiah, hoping for the king who would end the occupation. And we see that this whole city is now stirred up from this grand entrance. And it shouldn't surprise us. There are people from all over the place coming into town. No matter where you were from in the Roman Empire, you wanted the Messiah to come. You believed the Messiah was coming. You believed that this was going to unify you, that it was going to bring about what you wanted. So there's all these people And all this has risen to an extremely high level. They know what they want. And so it was very easy to spread the word all around the city. You didn't have to be there for the parade. Everybody would have known. There would have been a buzz. And so people want to know what's happening and who Jesus is. And we see how the people view Jesus here and how it's answered. He's more than a teacher. They see him as a prophet. They believe that he is from God and he is speaking for God. That's what it means when they say he's a prophet. Their statements and their actions show that they want to set him up as king. And so we have here in our second point the idea that Jesus is Messiah. And then we also have the idea that he is a king with a connection to David by the way they put the cloaks on the road. And they also state here that he is a prophet And so we have two of the three offices that we talk about Jesus having, right? We often speak of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And in point three, in point two here, we saw two of them being spelled out for us by Matthew. And as we move on to our third point, and the final point of part of our passage, we're going to see that Jesus is in the temple. So we've seen that he is a king. We have seen that he is a prophet, and now the third office of Jesus is going to be on display for us as he goes for the temple, because he fulfills a priestly role of cleansing the temple. And Matthew shows us this here. And it's interesting, because based on what the people have said, you would think the next step of Jesus would be to go overthrow the government, to use his power to get rid of the Romans, or to use his fame to gather to himself a mob who can overthrow the Romans. But where does he go? He goes to the temple? What's he doing? That isn't going to do anything for overthrowing the Romans and him being a king like the people so greatly desire. They're not going to make him king at the temple. What is he doing there? And while the people might like Jesus flipping a few tables over, Their concerns are not with the temple. Their desire isn't for a cleansed temple. Their desire is for the Romans to be gone. But in flipping the tables, Jesus is saying something very important. These people in the temple that had their tables set up, they were serving an important role. They were providing a way to convert Roman money into the temple currency so people could pay their tithe. They also were providing animals for sacrifice, and specifically, they were providing birds 
which would have been the sacrifice offered by those who couldn't afford to sacrifice a lamb. So ultimately, what was happening in the temple were necessary services, right? The temple shekel was required, but the people didn't get paid in temple currency, so they needed to exchange the money. And of course, the people were expected to travel miles upon miles and bring a sacrifice, but they couldn't be expected to bring bring a pigeon or another bird along with them through these miles, so they needed to buy something for a sacrifice. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, he takes issue with where they were set up and also with the people taking advantage of others. He says that this is the Lord's house and it's a house of prayer. This stuff shouldn't be set up where it has been set aside for people to come and people to pray. And then he also says that they are robbers. Now we don't know to what effect the people who set up shop in the temple, were taking advantage of people. But you know it would have been easy. It would have been an easy opportunity to steal from people by taking more than the exchange rate and by charging more for a bird than necessary because the people traveled all this way to make a sacrifice. They're going to pay a little extra, even though they don't have much money. You know they'll pay extra. You know they will. They need the bird. So even the poor people would have paid what they needed for these pigeons. And so what Jesus is concerned with is the purity of the temple. And so we see this priestly role of Jesus in play here. And we also find that he shows his authority to do what he has done by healing people here in the temple. Remember what the healing actions of Jesus establish for us. It shows us that his words and that his actions have authority from God. Jesus cleanses the temple, tells them what they're doing is wrong, and then he heals. And this is for us to know that he has every right to do this because he is speaking for God. It shows that he has authority. And it's so often when this happens, Jesus does this, and right away the bad guys show up, don't they? The scribes, the priests, the Pharisees, they show up to question this authority that he has. And notice that Jesus is able to show the authority. He's able to show that he has this authority to give by the power he has to heal. But the scribes and the chief priests, they still question it. They know the ramifications of what Jesus is doing and what the people are saying about him. And I love the way Matthew draws this out and the way he expresses this whole event for us. The children are crying out. It is likely the chants of Hosanna to the son of David have long died out in the streets by the masses. But now they are continuing from the children singing the song that they've heard from the adults. The grown-ups have probably moved on to some other concerns, acquiring sacrifices, changing their money, or getting settled in wherever they're lodging during the week for the Passover. But the children still have the truth on their lips, don't they? They're still saying who Jesus is, Hosanna to the Son of David. The crowds might be silent, but the truth is echoing through the streets of Jerusalem from the mouths of children. And we're told that the scribes are indignant. And so they ask Jesus if he can hear them. Well, of course he can. 
if they can hear him, he can hear him. They aren't really asking Jesus if he can physically hear the cries. They are asking if he objects to them, right? And so Jesus gives a scriptural answer, and they don't like it once again. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 8 here. And that psalm is addressed towards God. And so what is Jesus doing? He is claiming praise that was meant for God for himself. Yeah, you can see why this isn't going to make the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees very happy. He is claiming praise meant for God for himself. So with that thought in mind, we can understand how this last week in the life of Jesus is being set up. We can understand how we're going to go from praises of Hosanna to the son of David to crucify him. We can see it here. Because the people are expecting the overthrow of Rome. And in going to the temple, Jesus shows he isn't the earthly ruler they expect. And by the end of the week, these people expecting revolution against Rome are going to be sorely disappointed. And they will be ready to say, crucify him, give us that crook Barabbas. And Jesus' actions at the temple infuriate some, another group. The people are going to be upset, but now the people in the temple are even more upset. The scribes and the chief priests, they are ready to start conspiring even further to get rid of Jesus. And so we read of shouts of praise and the calls of save us now today. But we can easily see how good Friday's on the horizon. And so we praise Jesus on this day. We say with the people in the streets, Hosanna to the, King of, or the Son of David. But we know the path that our Savior is on, don't we? It's a path of betrayal. It's a path of suffering. As we look at this passage and we hope to apply it to our lives in the coming days and weeks, I want us to dwell on the reminder that we got in this passage of the threefold office of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. So first, as we head to Good Friday, we should be contemplating how Jesus is a prophet. He is the one who came. He is the one who declared the word of the Lord. He spoke words of comfort and peace, but he also spoke words that called people to turn from their sin and repent. So may we hear the word of the Lord and understand that he is the one through whom God has spoken. And may we daily take him at his word and trust the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And may it have primacy in our lives. Secondly, may the cleansing that Jesus did of the temple humbly remind us of the cleansing that he has done in our lives. He is our great high priest and he has cleansed the temple once and for all by the sacrifice of himself for our sins. So may we arrive at Good Friday not simply thinking that Jesus is a good teacher who was cut down in his prime. May we understand that Jesus was our high priest who offered the sacrifice of himself at the cross. Because the story of the cross is about a sacrifice. It's about 
the sacrifice for our sins and his substitution in our place. He bore the wrath of God for us. So may we consider humbly the work of Jesus for us this week with gravity. But we, may we also have joy in our hearts knowing that he has cleansed us once and for all with his perfect sacrifice for our sins. And finally, may we journey to Good Friday knowing that Jesus is our King. He did not arrive at this position by the people rising up and putting him on a throne. He did not assert his miraculous power and remove all adversaries. That's not how our Lord became King. Instead, he is a king who suffered for his people. His greatest triumph was not in a military battle. His greatest triumph wasn't in obtaining a particular tract of land. His coronation was on a cross, suffering for his people. And now he is our risen and ascended Lord. May we remember Jesus as our King, as we look to what He has done for His people. So in this coming week, may you and I be reminded of the fullness of who Jesus is, and may it lead us to turn from our sin and rejoice in the work that He has accomplished for us. And may all honor, glory, and praise be given to the Son of David For he has saved his people. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page.